Hey, welcome back. It is good to be back. So good to see you and to be with you. I know uh, for many of you, this is your, maybe your first week back. This is our second week back together. Uh, thank you for joining us. Man, the last few months have been a challenging few months, have they not? Um, we've all been influenced and impacted in different ways by everything that's happening uh, in our world, social distancing, online church, all of the protests and the tensions in our world. We've got a fun election coming up this fall. Woo! I, I remember a conversation our staff had back in March when everything shut down. Uh, when we said as a staff, we all kind of agreed that we didn't want to see this season wasted. We wanted God to use this season to draw us closer to him, to make us more like him, to accomplish his purposes in our lives and in, in our church family. And so I want to start today by asking, what, what's God been teaching you? How has your relationship with God been impacted the last few months? I know one of the ways that God, one of the things that God has been teaching me and one of the things that he's done in my own life is he's brought me back to the gospel, back to the basics, back to square one. And maybe for the first time in a long time, I've, I'm studying and I'm looking at the gospel through the lens with fresh eyes. And one of the things that uh, I'm seeing and one of the things that we're going to be reminded of today is an important part of the gospel, a fundamental truth about the message of Christianity, and that's this, that God accepts you because of what he did for you, not because of what you can do for him. We're in week six of our series, Knowing Jesus. We've been studying through several key events in Jesus's ministry. Last week, Ben looked at, uh, walked us through a scene that took place in the temple courts during Passover. If you happen to miss his message, you might want to listen to that. Today we're going to look at kind of part two of that story. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to John chapter 3, John chapter 3. Uh, you may be looking for a Bible underneath the chair around you. We took those out just to kind of have a touchless service. And so you want to follow along on your phone or we'll have the passages up on the screen. Hey, before we go any further, let's pray. Will you pray with me? Father, it is good to be back together as a church family. Uh, but our world is still in great chaos. It always has been, really. Um, we're living in a fallen and broken world, but we have hope in you, Jesus. And so we gather together as a church family to fix our eyes on you. And we're going to set our hearts and minds on the good news and the gospel today. We thank you for what you're going to teach us through your word. I just ask you, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Would you open our eyes? Help us to see what you want us to see. Open our ears and help us to hear what you want us to hear. Holy Spirit, please use this time to accomplish your purposes in our individual lives and in our church family. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's do a quick recap of last week. Jesus and his disciples go up to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Uh, reminder, the Passover was a celebration of when God delivered the Israelites out of slave, slavery, in, uh, from slavery in Egypt. And so tens of thousands of people would come from all over and they would travel to Jerusalem each year for this festival. Well, Jesus and his disciples arrive and when they enter the temple courts, Jesus finds people selling animals and they're doing so at exorbitant prices and money changers are charging excessive fees. And so Jesus is filled with this righteous anger. He makes a whip and drives them all out saying, stop turning my father's house into a market. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? 
As you can imagine, this all leaves quite an impression on everyone. When people witnessed what Jesus did, some began moving towards belief and commitment to Jesus. One of those people that day was a man named Nicodemus. We're going to look at his story. Let's pick it up in John chapter 3. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. So the first thing uh, John introduces, uh, tells us about Nicodemus when introducing Nicodemus to us is that he is a Pharisee and that he's a member of the Jewish ruling council, which is called the the Sanhedrin. Now, there were about as many as 6,000 Pharisees in any given time in Israel, but there were only 70 men in the Sanhedrin, in that Jewish ruling council. And so Nicodemus is one of the leaders of the Pharisees. Now, these are the people who would eventually put Jesus on trial and crucify him. So why, of all people, would a leader of the Pharisees initiate a one-on-one meeting with Jesus? Well, by all accounts, he had a sincere interest in Jesus. There was a sincere interest in knowing more about him. He may have been likely moving towards faith in Jesus. But to get a little bit more insight on what's going on in Nicodemus's heart. Let's pull back real quick and let's consider why the apostle John wrote the whole gospel, his whole gospel in the first place. John tells us in the very last chapter, in the last, uh, his closing statement of his gospel, he says this. He says, these things are written, the things I've written in my gospel are written so that you, the reader, may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John is telling us that everything he included in his book including the story of Nicodemus. He included so that you and I may believe in Jesus and that we may have life in his name. So why did Nicodemus ultimately come to Jesus? Well, through this lens, it's because he was searching, he was searching for life. Here's a guy who had it all. Think about this. Nicodemus was well-educated, he achieved success, he had influence in the respect of his peers, he certainly had financial security, he lived a moral life, he spent his whole life trying to honor God, he's one of the religious leaders, likely a decorated teacher, and yet he comes to this carpenter from Nazareth who's leading an upstart ministry full of ragtag disciples. Why? Well, despite all of Nicodemus' success, something was still missing. He was unsatisfied. He had not found the life he was searching for. Maybe that's, to some degree, maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're searching for something. And maybe regardless of where you are in your relationship with God, maybe the last few months in this season of social isolation, this season of uh, life being unsettled, maybe you've come to realize that you're pretty unsatisfied with your life. That something is still missing in your life. Well, Jesus is going to try and help Nicodemus find what he's looking for, and and maybe he wants to do the same for you. Let's keep reading. Verse 3, here's how Jesus replies. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into into their mother's womb to be born. 
I can, I can promise you, this is not quite the direction that Nicodemus thought this conversation was going, right? I mean, have you ever sought guidance from someone and they gave you some really unexpected and unwelcomed advice? Uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you are spiritually blind. You know, throughout his ministry, Jesus actually uh, repeatedly told the Pharisees they were spiritually blind. He called them blind guides. Uh, you know the phrase, the blind leading the blind? It came from Jesus. That's where that phrase came from. He, re- he refers to them as the blind guides, the blind leading blind in Matthew chapter 15. Now, I took my kids fishing on Friday. Now, that was the blind leading the blind right there. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. But the fun part was my son Gideon, five years old, first line out, he catches a fish. Yeah, I'm like, yes, I'm like, thank you, Lord. Now, he did, we didn't catch anything else for the rest of the hour. But uh, we, he, did ca- he did catch something. But that's a blind leading the blind. I thought, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm putting a worm on the hook. I'm throwing it in the water. We caught one or two, so that was good. But Ni- Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you're spiritually blind, and you need a new birth. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asks. Well, Jesus answers, verse 5. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God, unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. So first Jesus says no one can see, and now he says no one can enter. Nicodemus, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of water and the spirit. Now, what is the kingdom of God? We could do a whole series on this. A lot could be said about what the kingdom of God is, but simply put, let's just say it's the family of God. And so Jesus is saying, we enter the kingdom of God, the family of God, through a spiritual birth. Just as a flesh and blood uh, mother gives birth to a flesh and blood child, the Holy Spirit of God is the only one who gives birth to spiritual children. The Greek word for uh, born again can also mean uh, to be born from above. God is the source of our spiritual birth. Now, look at how the Apostle John opens his gospel. In his introduction in chapter 1, here's what John writes. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, in Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human's decision or or of a husband's will, but born of God. The power and the the significance of the birth illustration is that when a baby is born, it puts forth no effort of its own in the process, right? In fact, let me just take a quick two-question survey here. Okay, first, raise your hand if you've ever been born. Okay, just for the record, everybody should have been raising their hand. I just want to make sure we're all understood that, right? If you didn't raise your hand, come see me afterwards. Okay. Second question, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being very little effort and 10 being a whole lot of effort, how much effort did you personally put into being born? Zero, right? None of us put any effort into our own birth. I've had the privilege in the front row of being in the, having a front row seat at all five of my children's births and uh, seeing all of, them, all of them being born. I can tell you there was only one person in that room who was doing any work who was putting forth any real effort, and that was mama. Can I get an amen, moms? Amen, right? And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, I mean, I was working, but, you know, I can't take any. Okay, never mind. 
page isn't here today. Okay, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you aren't spiritually born through your own effort. You're not born through your own effort. It's like the wind, Jesus says. It's not something you have control or, or, or power over. It's not something you determine, you dictate. And Jesus also mentions being born of water. Now, there are two basic views on what he meant here. Jesus may have been referring to water baptism, which would really signify repentance. But others suggest that Jesus may have been referring to an Old Testament passage that Nicodemus would have or should have known. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 36. Here's what it says. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now let's keep this up here for a minute. I want to show you something. This was a prophetic Old Testament passage about the Messiah, about Jesus. And notice how many times God uses the phrase, I will. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will remove your heart of stone. I will put my spirit in you. Jesus says, Nicodemus, just as a baby isn't born through its own effort, neither will you enter the kingdom of God through your own effort or through your own merit or through your own performance. God is the one who does all the work. And this is good news. And Nicodemus is listening and he's taking everything in. And here's his response in verse 9. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. How can this be? He's struggling to wrap his mind around this. Listen, if you... If you really wrestle with the gospel of Christianity and the message of Christianity, you will ask this same question. How can this be? Entry into the kingdom of God, entry into the family of God doesn't require any personal effort on my part. God does all the work. How can this be? If you skip ahead to verse 14, just a few verses later, Jesus tells us. That's Nicodemus' last response. That's the last words we have from Nicodemus. How can this be? And Jesus is going to try to take one more shot at helping Nicodemus see how this happens. He says in verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes, everyone who believes may have eternal life. Now, Jesus references Moses lifting up a snake in the wilderness. He's answering Nicodemus' question by referencing an Old Testament story. It's in Numbers chapter 21. The Israelites are on their way to the Red Sea, and they are grumbling and complaining against God and against Moses. And so the Lord sent snakes among them to discipline them. And many thousands were bitten and died. Can we just stop, pause and say, thank you, Lord, that we live in the New Testament, the, the era of the New Testament, right? So God disciplines them. Many are bitten. Many died. They're convicted of their sin. And so then they go to Moses and they ask for forgiveness. And Moses goes before God. He intercedes on their behalf. And the Lord told Moses, make a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And everyone who looked at the snake on the pole would live and would survive, would be healed. All they had to do was look in faith and they would live. How much effort does it take to look? About as much effort as it takes for a baby to 
for a baby to be born on its own. Jesus says, Nicodemus, entering the kingdom of God is just like this. This is the end of the conversation. This is all we have recorded between Nicodemus and Jesus. Now, Nicodemus will show up two more times in John's gospel. In John chapter 7, he comes to Jesus' defense as the Pharisees are arguing about Jesus and criticizing Jesus, and and Nicodemus kind of comes to his defense, and then he gets ridiculed by the other Pharisees for doing so. And then in chapter 19 of John, after the crucifixion, it's Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who take Jesus' body and place it in the tomb. And so by all accounts, we don't know for sure, but it sure seems like John is telling us, it's pretty clear at this point, that Nicodemus, by the end of Jesus' ministry, had put his faith in Jesus, had been born again and put it, became a follower. Well, what, what's the lesson for us? First, we learn that being a successful, influential, morally good person who tries really hard to honor God doesn't earn you entrance into the kingdom of God. And for that matter, it won't bring you a satisfying life either. See, here's the thing you got to get about Nicodemus. As a Pharisee, he had spent his entire adult life putting forth great personal effort at entering the kingdom of God. In fact, the whole goal of the Pharisees is to keep the, was to keep the Ten Commandments and to follow 600 plus laws of the Torah. And they worked really hard and they believed that because they kept this law that they were pleasing to God. In fact, the word Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word meaning separated. It was their efforts at keeping the law, at, at, at performing well, that they believed set them apart from everyone else. Now, while none of us are trying to keep the 600 plus laws in the Old Testament in order to please God, can we all just acknowledge that we can easily fall into the trap of believing that the way we please God, the way we are acceptable to God, is by becoming really good Christians. But that's not the gospel. That's not what the Bible teaches us. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul addresses this head on. We're going to look at the New Living Translation. He says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law, God's Old Testament law, Ten Commandments and so forth, simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Paul is teaching the same thing here that Jesus was trying to teach Nicodemus. Paul goes on in Romans 3, verse 26. He says this, God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? Oh, what good news. Can we boast? Can we boast, Paul says, that we've done anything to be accepted by God? Can a new baby boast at all about being born? No, Paul writes, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. This is exactly what Jesus was trying to teach Nicodemus. See, Christianity is, the, the, the message of Christianity is that our faith is not what we do for God. God doesn't accept us based on what we do for him. Our faith is in what God has done for us. Or another way to say it is God accepts you. God accepts you because of what he did for you, not because of what you do for him. 
Nicodemus thought if he obeyed the law, if he was a good person and performed well, that God would accept him. Many of us as Christ followers, we fall into the same trap. We fall into the same broken way of thinking. And here's why. I'll give you two reasons why even Christ followers can fall into this thinking. Reason number one is this. Every soul has a need for acceptance by God. And number two, the way of acceptance in the world is through your own performance. We've all at some point had that playground experience. We've had this before, right? Oh, don't, I, I, just, I, I, could, I can't stand it. Can't you, I'm, I'm gonna take you there, that pit in your stomach when you were kids. Kids, you all can probably relate to this, right? That playground experience when just before a game of kickball begins, two kids are chosen. I don't know how they got chosen, but they're, the, they're, they're, not gonna, they're, they're choosing the teams, right? And they're beginning to pick their teammates and you have that anxious feeling, that pit in your stomach as you stand there because what are you doing? You want them to pick you to be on their team. You don't want to be the last one picked. You don't want to be the one who is left out. Why is that? Because we all want to be accepted. Every person, regardless of age, gender, race, or religion, we all have a deep need in our soul for acceptance. What we don't often realize is that the acceptance we're really searching for is the acceptance of our creator. To be accepted means to be welcomed and invited into relationship. It means you're embraced and included. To be fully accepted means someone knows everything about you, the good, the bad, and the really ugly stuff. And they still choose to be your friend. This is the kind of acceptance we all long for, isn't it? Now, the world says that the way to acceptance is through your performance. If you perform well, if you limit your weaknesses and failures, if you are strong and successful, if you minimize the bad and you maximize the good, then you are welcomed and invited in. You are embraced and included. We can think that that's the way God feels about us, that that's the way we gain acceptance with God. That's not true. And so what ends up happening is we try really hard to earn God's acceptance We try to overcome our weaknesses. We try to avoid failure at all costs. We try to minimize or even hide our imperfections and our limitations. We try to earn the acceptance of God. We try to earn the acceptance of our peers. We try to earn the acceptance of our uh, our employers. Children try to earn the acceptance of their parents. Players try to earn the acceptance of their coaches. This is the way of the world. And it's the way of every other major world religion. All the major world religions... Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, all of them, major, all the major religions. The message is this. You are accepted by God through your good performance. You can achieve God's favor by the good things you do. The good in your life must somehow outweigh the bad, so you better try hard. And so we're inundated with this message of our world. That's the message of our world. And so as Christians, we can begin to think that that's the way we gain God's acceptance. But the Apostle John After that conversation with Nicodemus there in chapter 3, John adds some commentary. And he, he, he seems to do it just to make sure that we don't miss the point of what Jesus was teaching Nicodemus. And it's here where John gives us maybe the most well known Bible verse in the world. It's John 3 16. Here's what John writes. Right after the interaction with Nicodemus, John writes this For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. 
The gospel writer John used the word believe over a hundred times in his gospel. He's saying, just so you don't miss the point, Jesus was telling Nicodemus, the way you enter the kingdom of God is through faith. This is the gospel. This is the good news. It was good news for Nicodemus and it's good news for you and me. And maybe you're, this, you're here this morning and maybe there's maybe just one or two of you, maybe there's a few of you and you've never put your faith in Christ. Maybe you've been like Nicodemus. You've been moving towards faith in Jesus, but you've had some questions. You've been trying to wrap your mind around the message of Jesus. I want to encourage you. I ask you, look at the cross. Just look at the cross. All you have to do is look. Look in faith to Jesus on the cross. And when you, cross on you, cross. When you do, the moment you put your faith in him, you are born again, born from above, born of God. You experience a spiritual birth by the power of the Holy Spirit and you are now welcomed into the family of God, included and embraced as a child of God. Now, for most of us, we have put our faith in Christ. We've been born of God. But we need to be reminded that God accepts us because of what he did for us and not because of what he did for God. One of the things the Lord has been showing me the last few months is that for most of my walk with the Lord, when it comes to the gospel, I've always been really thankful for the fact that my sins are forgiven. That when I do sin, I confess my sin and I repent of it and I can rest in the fact that because of the cross, God doesn't count my sins against me. But the Lord's also been showing me that I, I've spent several years now gaining a lot of confidence in my own righteousness. I, I gain a lot of confidence in the good things I do for Jesus. Just like Nicodemus, I, 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 I take a lot of pride in the effort I put in towards my relationship with God. You ever find yourself doing that? Take some sense of pride, some sense of security that you're a Christ follower, that you're living a pretty good Christian life. The Lord's taken me to Philippians chapter 3 in the words of the Apostle Paul kind of correct my thinking and my heart. Maybe I'll do the same for you. Just listen as I read. Paul says this, Philippians chapter 3, whatever were gains to me, all of my own efforts at following God, Paul says, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul says, I consider all the good stuff I do apart from Christ garbage. I don't want to have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says, I don't want any righteousness of my own. I have no righteousness of my own. Pastor and author Tim Keller said, I heard him say recently, he said, uh, most Christians know we need to repent of our sin, but most Christians have never really considered that you have to repent of your own righteousness too. All the things that you're doing for God that you think you're doing for him to earn his acceptance, you got to repent of that too. If you repent of your sin and you repent of your righteousness, what are you left with? Nothing of your own. That's when you can receive the righteousness of Christ. And you can take in and take in the good news that you have Christ's righteousness. So let's not forget today. Let's give thanks and praise. Let's worship God. Let's rest in the freedom that God accepts you because of what he did for you, not because of what you do for him. Let's pray.
Father, I am so thankful that you loved us so much that you sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I'm so thankful that not only have you forgiven us of our sins, you don't count our sins against us, but you also, you also don't count our righteousness. It's worthless. We come to you empty-handed and all we have to stand on is your righteousness, the righteousness that comes from you. So God, would you help us to receive that to get today? Would you help us to root our identity, our value, our security in you alone? Our faith is in you. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.